I was guilty with nothing to say. And they were coming to take me away. But then a voice from heaven was heard that said, Let him. I really like that song, don't you? What a great song that is, amen? That's awesome. Well, tonight, I'm glad you're here, and we begin our new series on marriage, and uh, I want to address that, uh, start talking about some of those issues, marriage made simple, and uh, so we're going to do that along the way. Today, we're going to kind of kick it all off, and we're going to take a few moments to kind of try to identify uh, the I guess, the foundation of marriage biblically, and then we're going to begin to consider some of the trends of our day and, um, and take a look at that and how that's affecting marriage and affecting our culture, our society, and everyone and everything around us. And so, again, we're going to move along today, and again, we have a baptism. I'm excited about that. And so we're going to get things going and uh, move in that direction. But again, we appreciate you being here and a part of the service, and if you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. It's always glad to have you with us. All right, well, <clears throat> I'm just going to start, and you can take your Bible if you want. You can turn right to the first verse of the entire Bible, if you like, Genesis 1-1. You can get started right there, and um, it's interesting. Uh, on one hand, as a culture, we seem fixated on marriage. We spend about $50 billion annually on weddings, and we 
continue to have active debate about same-sex marriage and everything else. I mean, marriage is big business in the United States. And uh, <clears throat> it has gripped all of us to some degree or another, and it has, uh, you know, certainly um, played a factor in all of our lives in one way or another. But we are witnessing an alarming exodus from marriage, and instead, raising children amid unstable, cohabitating relationships and serial partnerships have endangered the institution of marriage and have become quickly a new norm in our culture. That's a problem. As recently as the 1980s, only 13% of children of high school-educated mothers were born outside of marriage. 13%. By the late 2000s, this figure rose to a striking 44%. Again, that's just saying, I say late 2000s, I'm talking about 2010, right in that range. And yet almost none of our political or social leaders are talking about that kind of dramatic shift. Those are important things to address and to deal with. Why should we care at all? <clears throat> What's the difference? Why does it even matter? Well, marriage isn't merely a private arrangement that's made between two people. It's a very complex social institution that affects the culture we live in, affects the world we live in. Stable families enable children to thrive. They shore up communities. They help family members to succeed during both good times as well as weather the bad times. Families are very vital, and they are extremely important. We're in a battle for the home today, a battle I believe like, well, never before, at least in my lifetime. And again, I'm sure through history that battle's been fought before, but let me tell you, here in America, we are in a battle like we've never been for marriage. Satan has used various means through history and through the centuries to thwart God's plan. And you know, I mean, he's used persecution. We know in the early church, persecution was pretty popular. We know that whether it was from the Judaizers or even pagan Rome, persecution just was, uh, was uh, basically uh, Satan's top weapon against Christianity. But as time went on, he recognized and realized that even persecution couldn't hold the church down. And so he turned to compromise. And so Satan began to try to compromise, and we found ourselves in the area of Constantine in 325 B.C. We find him compromising. We see pagan Rome and the church coming together. And we see a mixture of both paganism and we see Christianity kind of cohesive, coming together, creating something of oneness. That was a compromise. And so Satan thought to stamp out the church again through compromise. We know that didn't completely work, although it certainly put a dent in things for sure. There have been a number of tactics Satan has used through the years. Again, to thwart God's plan and his purpose for his people and his purpose and plan even for the world and the universe in which we live. Today, he's attacking marriage and he's attacking the home with a vengeance. That is a reality. If he can undermine or redefine or do away with marriage in the home, he is going to level a devastating blow to the cause of Christ, a blow that will cut the legs out from underneath the church. Now, here in the book of Genesis 1-1, we see the foundation of marriage. We recognize where it all comes from. First of all, and right off the bat, we note, in the beginning, God. Before we go any further, it must be assumed and understood that there is God. And in the beginning, God, 
He is the beginning and he is the end. There is no beginning without God. There is no end without God. He is, in, he is before the beginning, if you will, and he will be forever. There's no beginning and no end with God. So before you and I ever arrived on the scene, before the world was ever created, before the celestial ball was formed, let me tell you, God was already there. In the beginning, God. And the Bible says he created the heaven and the earth. And so we see God, our creator, and ultimately it goes on in chapter 1 to define and outline what that means for us here on earth itself. And we see God saying, let there be light, and there was light, and so on and so forth, till ultimately he arrives at verse 26. And notice in chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over, every, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. And a very significant statement is made here now. Male and female created he them. God made us male and female. Now again, we can in our best ability, redefine what it means to be male or female. We can go ahead and redefine what, what, how we came into existence. We can say, well, there is no God, and there was only you know, Darwinism, and, and, and obviously a, a big bang, and here we are today, and it all just worked out that way. But that is not scriptural, nor is it biblical. And if today you want to believe something from the Word of God, then you have to believe there's a God already. And someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible. That's your prerogative and you have that right. But my friend, that will hold no water at the judgment one day. And the fact is today is that there is a Bible and it is God's word. And he tells us that he literally created all things. And when he created, he created mankind. He created them male and female. Interestingly enough, where did marriage come from? We're going to see here now as we move along in verse 28. He, he says here in the passage, and God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. By the way, I, listen, I am not in any way opposed to treating animals properly. I think you ought to treat your animals right. Biblically and scripturally, you are responsible to be properly addressing uh, and dealing with animals. There's no place for cruelty of animals, being nasty or mean to animals. But my friend, there's not one animal on earth that's equal to a human being in God's eyes. Now, I am not trying to be nasty, nor am I trying to be mean. I'm simply saying, biblically and scripturally, mankind was given dominion over the earth and over everything else that was created. By the way, we're going to see here that also, notice what it says in Genesis 2 now, verse 7. There is a very distinct difference between mankind and animals. Someone says, oh, you mean man has a soul? No, no, so does an animal, by the way. An animal has a soul. Watch the difference here in chapter 2, verse 7. We have bodies and souls, both. However, note the, the distinction that God makes for mankind. In chapter 2, verse 7, he goes on to say, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That means man's soul lives forever. It's a living soul. Listen, animals have souls. You know what the soul produces? Personality. 
Every animal is a different personality. And let me tell you something, just even this afternoon, we had one of our, 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 our family members named Maisie over at our house. Now Maisie's not a child, Maisie is a dog. One of the family. Maisie jumps in the swimming pool. Maisie's crazy and Maisie's running in circles. And Maisie has a personality, a magnetic personality. I mean, it's fun to be around Maisie. But Maisie does not have a living soul. Maisie has a soul and a body, but not a living soul. Mankind was given this wonderful gift to live on forever. So when God in eternity created mankind, he gave him a living soul, which means from the moment mankind is created or conceived, he will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The question is where? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Notice what else he says in verse 15. And the Lord, took, uh, Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So at this point now, he takes this man that he has created in his image, in his likeness. He places him in the garden to keep and to dress it. Do you know what man's purpose was? To work in God's creation. Did you, I mean, how simple is that? To work in his creation. To actively be involved in the creation of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What an opportunity it is. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I, I was taught years ago as a young man to enjoy work. I mean, to, to, to enjoy your work. Now, there are some things I enjoy doing much more. I used to work at McDonald's. And let me tell you something. I hated cleaning out the grease traps. I mean, for weeks, that just would build up. And you know, somebody's supposed to be cleaning it all the time, but for some reason, it seemed like when it was my turn, it was always like overflowing. A grease trap, I mean, it smelled so bad. It was so disgusting. I could have done without grease traps. But I did learn to enjoy work. I mean, I was taught to work and to work hard and you ought to enjoy your work. And, and if you can't, then find another job that you can. You know, that kind of thing. Hey, God intended that we enjoy work. Now, we're going to see that a few things changed from the time that he put man in the garden originally till after. Because work isn't quite as pleasurable as it used to be. But notice he goes on to say, and the Lord God took the man, verse 15, and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. But as he moves along here in the chapter, he comes to the place where he recognizes that mankind isn't getting along too awfully well. He's doing all right, but boy, he just seems so lonely for some reason. I mean, every time God says, hey, how you doing, Adam? Adam's like, I'm doing good, God. I'm all right. What do you mean you're all right? You got every good thing there is in the garden and I've given you all these animals and all these creatures and you've named every one of them and man, I mean to tell you, you've got the best environment possible. You don't have any sin around you and you've got every opportunity to succeed. And he says, I know. I might be over-exaggerating somewhat, but God certainly recognized that he needed something. You know what he needed? A woman. Don't all of us men need a woman usually to keep us in line. Adam needed a woman. 
He needed someone, a companion, somebody that he could have a relationship with that was much more unique than even with the animals. And so God said, you know what, in verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. There's all these animals, there's all this activity in the garden, but it's not like he's really interacting the way he should. He's, it's not good that he's alone. And so, he says, I will make him a helpmeet for him. A helpmeet. It's interesting, the word helpmeet, that's much different than a helpmate. See, I don't need my wife to come alongside me and, and just say, hey, give me a hand. Do some work, woman. That's not what God's intending the purpose for the wife is. She's a helpmeet. She meets a need in my life. She makes me complete and whole. Together we are one. We work together in life to build something that glorifies God and honors God together. I am better for having the helpmeet in my life, meeting a need and providing for me in a way that no other could other than Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one that provided me this opportunity. Help me. And so God made this help me. Do you know, that's where marriage comes from now. We have Adam and Eve together. God created them male and female, and in the end, he brought the two together. Listen, he even, he did the first surgery that was recorded. And he removed a rib out of Adam, and he made the woman, because woman came from man. Someone says, oh, that's just a bunch of truth. Is that what you meant to say? That's just a bunch of Bible. Yeah, exactly. Glad we all agree. Look, if you would now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Everything was going like gangbusters. I mean, this relationship was on fire. It was awesome. But something went awry. It got all messed up. You know what, got, what happened? A word, a three-letter word called S-I-N, sin. Rebellion snuck in. The, the devil, once again, trying to thwart God's plan, trying to wreck and ruin his plan. Well, he did a pretty good job of it in the garden. And as a result, we're going to see that the Lord is going to have to remove Adam and Eve from the garden, and things are going to be different now. It wasn't what God ultimately intended, nor was it what he exactly wanted, but he's going to make the best of it, and he's going to help mankind too, because remember, after six days, the Bible says that God rested. Six days of creating the entire universe, and now he says, and God rested. Well, guess what? He's going to, he rested because his work was finished. But now, he isn't going to be able to rest anymore because his work of redemption is going to have to begin. Because mankind is now sin, and the only way that mankind can be uh, once again brought back into fellowship with a holy, righteous God is through the perfect work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And so the work of redemption begins. But notice what happens here in chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, tempting the woman and deceiving the woman, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. 
It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's a lot of prophetic meaning in that passage, and we note that Jesus Christ will be the offspring of the woman, and ultimately Jesus Christ is going to crush Satan's head. We see that pictured in Leviathan in the book of Psalms when he crushes Leviathan's head and casts the flesh down to earth during the, the, tri the tribulation. I don't have time to go into all of the details because it's very, uh, th those details are, 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 are picturesque of things. We, we see God speaking and, and it breaks down into you know, very practical things that take place. But for time's sake, we don't have time to deal with prophecy today as we're dealing with marriage. But there are some consequences now to sin. And by the way, there are always consequences to sin. Always consequences. You can't do things contrary to God and his word without there being some major consequences. It's going to cost you. And he goes on to say in verse 16, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, and of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So for the man we find that when work was once so pleasurable, now it's going to be work. <laughs> I mean real work. I mean sweaty work. I mean, it's not going to be like you just dress the garden and take care of it, and wow, look at all those wonderful fruits and vegetables. This is great. Now you're going to have to really work. And a matter of fact, you better wear some gloves because you're going to get pricked in your finger from time to time. There's going to be all kind of prickers and all kind of stuff you got to deal with and weeds that are growing up through all of that. That's part of the curse. But also, you noted probably along the way as he was dealing with the woman and dealing with the man that all of a sudden there's going to be some elements in the relationship that will be very stressed and strained. According to the Bible, because the woman was deceived, then the man was placed in headship over the woman. And yet the woman, by nature, will have a tendency to fight for headship and leadership. And if it, it listen, if we are not restrained by biblical restraint, if we allow our flesh to control us and to rule us, homes are going to be like this constantly, always at battle, always at odds with one another. The wife and the husband fighting for preeminence, fighting for a leadership, wanting to, to have, so to speak, the headship. There's going to be a battle taking place in the flesh against one, one another. God never intended that to be. There was to be perfect harmony between husband and wife. They're to be fulfilling their God-given roles according to God and his word. And in fulfilling those God-given roles, there is peace and purpose in the home, the marriage, and family. And you know what? That still can be the case today, but it is never the case if we disregard God's word. Amen. The moment we shelve God's word, then we are facing our, our relationships, our marriage, and our, our parenting in, the, in, in, in regards to how the world defines it and the world says it's supposed to work. My friend, it doesn't work that way. We are dealing with the, a, a fallen nature now. <clears throat> We're dealing with a fallen world 
Matter of fact, the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8 that the earth itself, the world itself groans. Groans by, for what reason? Because of sin. Do you think that all of the, that, that it's coincidental that there are tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes? That is the earth groaning. Sin is, is, is what has caused all the, the mess in our world. And so we have marriage. Rooted and founded and grounded in the word of God. It has a scriptural foundation. And so the very foundation of society, however, is also found in this God-ordained institution called marriage. If the marriage is not strong, if the, the, the uh, institution of marriage is not promoted, it is not prioritized in a culture, then the foundation is no longer going to exist and we are on sinking sand. And I want you to understand that in America, we are fighting for marriages today like never before. And unfortunately, we are losing the battle. I reviewed a report of over 100 pages from the Institute of American Values entitled The State of Our Unions from 2010. And I want to share some key findings of this study. This is not a, 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 a church organization. It's not a um, Christian organization. It is a secular organization. So I'm not pulling numbers out of a hat that align with what I believe. It's something that you can access, and probably in 2020, my understanding is it appears that there'll be another report, and I'm looking forward to getting it when it comes out. But these stats, for the most part, and these trends are primarily taken from 2010 and back. And may I just say this? I can guarantee you that if indeed those were trends in 2010, they are probably worse now than they were then. Things aren't getting better. They are getting worse in this area. So <clears throat> let me share a few key findings with you, and we'll just do a few because of time today. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We ask for your leadership today. Thank you for just how you work in our lives. Thank you for the, the institution of marriage, a God-ordained, it's your ordained institution. Lord, help us to be very, very careful to honor you with our marriages in our lives. We need you. Because, Lord, how our marriages uh, ultimately turn out, Lord, you, you, you've made it very clear to us in your word that it's going to affect us directly. It'll determine the success of our, our homes. It'll determine the success of our communities and even our country and our world. Father, we turn this service over to you. We're asking you to speak to us. Use some of these findings, Lord, that have been done through research and help us to, Father, make sense of things so that we can recognize how important and how vital it is that we strive and work hard at our marriages. We need you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 18:22. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. The Bible says in chapter 18, verse 22, Whoso findeth a wife, <clears throat> findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. I tell our singles all the time, you want a wife, you better go find one. <clears throat> and if you find one, you found a good thing. 
Now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, sad to say that in many cases, people don't always continue to feel that way. And that's one of the problems that we find in our world today. But the Bible outlines and clearly states, if you found a wife, sir, you found a good thing. Now, the Bible is always true. And it's always right. And yet, in our day and age, marriage trends in recent decades indicate that Americans have become less likely to marry. And the most recent data shows that the marriage rate in the United States continues to decline even. This is reflected in a decline of more than 50% from 1970 to 2009 in the annual number of marriages per thousand unmarried adult women. For instance, so let me read that again in whole. This is reflected in a decline of more than 50% from 1970 to 2009 in the annual number of marriages per thousand unmarried adult women. Now, I don't know about you, but that's rather alarming. Since 1970 to 2009, a 50% decline among adult women of marriage. Much of this decline, it's not really clear just how much, can result from the delaying of first marriages until older ages. For instance, people are getting married at later ages now, so sometimes the statistics may appear to be a greater number of people not getting married when in in reality they're waiting till later to get married. And today, uh, it, it seems that, you know, the median age at first for the first marriage climbed from 20 years old for females and 23 for males in 1960 to about 26 and 28 in 2009. So in 1960, you were a 20-year-old woman, a 23-year-old man getting married normally. Now it's 26 ladies, 28 men. However, I read statistics recently that have raised that another year. It's almost 27 to 29 now. Of those who do marry, there has been a moderate drop since 1970s in the percentage of couples who consider their marriages to be very happy. But since 2000 to 2010, the trend has flattened out. So basically, there was an uphill kind of battle here. Very happy marriage. Eh, I don't think so. Less couples felt that way. It's kind of leveled off to some degree. A key finding. Another key finding. Matthew 19, 6 tells us, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The American divorce rate today is nearly twice that of 1960. And it has declined since hitting the highest point in our history in the early 1980s. So in 1980, the divorce rate was as high as it's been in recent memory. The 1960s, of course, um, we, we saw that the divorce rate was extremely low early on. It began to climb later on in the 60s. The average couple marrying for the first time now has a lifetime probability of divorce or separation somewhere between 40 and 50%. Although the long-term trend in divorce has been upward since colonial times, the divorce rate remained level for about two decades after World War II. We didn't see an increase Remained pretty level. During that, the period of high fertility known as the baby boom, that period of time people stayed together, had children, and of course we saw a number of children born, of course, in that time frame, two decades, in that two decades following World War II. 
By the middle of the 1960s, however, the divorce rate was increasing and it more than doubled over the next 15 years to reach a historic high point in the early 80s. So within 15 years from 65 right on up to 80, divorce continued to increase steadily and, and alarmingly to where we reached the highest number, uh, highest point historically in 1980, in the early 80s. Then there's this phenomena called gray divorce. It's emerged over the last few decades. These particular statistics are 2012 statistics. Among those aged 54 to 64, the divorce rate has quadrupled over the past 30 years. This is called gray divorce. Why gray? Because of gray hair. Okay? One in four divorces in 2010 involve couples ages 50 and older. Can you imagine that? 25% of divorces in 2010 involve couples age 50 and older. Now, most of you young people in the room, you would say age 50 is old, right? And, and you know what? For divorce, it is extremely old, by the way. But it's not old. I'll arm wrestle any of you. Well, maybe not a few of you. But anyway... <clears throat> The fact is, is it goes on to say 69% of older Americans in 2014 said that they think divorce is morally acceptable compared to 45% in 2001. Now notice that for a minute. 45% of adults in 2001, older adults, 45% said, hey, divorce is morally acceptable. That raised to 69%. I just... Did you see me swat that fly? That, I, was, I was like, you know, a karate kid. But anyway, <clears throat> six, <laughs> 69% of Americans in 2014 said that they think divorce is morally acceptable. What an increase. That's an amazing increase. Since 2008, web traffic for those over age 55 has increased 39% on Match.com. <clears throat> Two out of three gray divorces are initiated by women. That's significant as well. Now, again, you think about these statistics and you consider these findings. We know what God says about divorce, but yet we're seeing a different attitude and a different mentality about it in our culture. We understand that there are situations that are just beyond our control. We get that. But unfortunately, the overall mentality toward divorce and toward relationships called marriage <clears throat> has been whittled away, completely disintegrating in our very midst. <clears throat> That's a problem. Then there are some statistics on social media and divorce. This is extremely alarming, by the way. One in three divorces start as online affairs. Can you imagine that? One in three, 33% of divorces start as online affairs. What's the big deal about the phone, preacher? What's the big deal about a tablet? What's the big deal? Maybe it could save your marriage if you weren't on it all the time. That's a good point. 25% of couples fight about Facebook at least once a week. One in seven married people have con contemplated divorce because of their partner's social media activity. One in five feel uneasy about their relationship after discovering something on their partner's Facebook account. 14% of adults say they look through their partner's social media accounts for evidence of infidelity. 
again, it has to be understood that these trends are not getting better over the last 10 years. <clears throat> I just want to say that it's very important that we understand that marriage is God's institution. It's God's institution. It ought to be a wonderful thing. I mean, we, we note here right in the passage, whosoever findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. He says that in his, his, in his uh, um, world and God's perspective is, listen, you're getting married. Man, make it a lifetime commitment. I'm just saying things are changing in our world. They're, they're, they're turning upside down. I could go through a number of other key findings. And we are watching a revolution in our world today and in our culture. People living together without marriage. Folks choosing never to get married, but just stay together. These are things that are affecting marriage across the board. And as we noted even this morning, they are affecting our children and they are affecting the lives of, our, of, of those in our nation. We, we better be careful. This institution is God's institution and the foundation that it lays for our culture and the success of our nation and our world, it, it is unquestionable. You go ahead and we, we continue on the trend that we're going and, and we find that people are not getting married. And statistically, I don't have time to go into it, but people who don't get married are less likely to stay together than those that do even. And you're putting people in homes. And, and by the way, I, listen, you go ahead and believe whatever you want, but statistically speaking, your child has such a, a much higher rate or a, a, a chance of being abused if you do not have a biological father in the home. This idea that you can just go ahead and have men and women coming in and out of your house without putting your family at risk, that is ignorance. If not, just downright stupidity. Ignorance being you just don't know any better. Stupidity, you do know better, but you don't care. Someone says, that's pretty harsh. Well, let me tell you something. I care about kids. I hope you do too. Amen. And I wouldn't want my lifestyle to endanger my child. And these kind of things are causing a, a wreaking havoc in our world today. How important and how valuable is your marriage to you today? You say, well, I've already been divorced a couple times and remarried. I don't care. How valuable is your marriage today? That's what matters today. You can't do anything about yesterday, but you can do something about today. And listen, according to God, that marriage is important and it is valuable and it is foundational. We're going to be talking about making marriage simple. And we're going to talk about characteristics and qualities that will help you to build a, a relationship of mutual respect and admiration as well as satisfaction. It's so awfully important that we take steps to work on our marriages today in a culture that is bent on trying to undermine marriage, the home and family. We as believers have to adopt as well as 
ensure, I mean, without a doubt, just embrace the word of God and obey God's word and implement his truths in our lives and our homes and our families. And I want to encourage you to do it. It starts with a relationship with Christ. Let me ask you, do you know him as your Savior and Lord? You know, we talked about Adam, and we said that God breathed into him the breath of life. He became a living soul. From the very moment that he became a living soul, he would live on forever. I mean forever. His life began way back here in a garden. But can I tell you that today, Adam is still alive? And the truth is, is that the moment you were conceived, my friend, your life began and you are going to have an eternal soul. That means it will live on forever and ever and ever and ever somewhere. Now, the Bible is very clear. There are only two places in which we will reside. We will either reside with the Lord Jesus Christ in a place called heaven, or we will be separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. That is all dependent on whether or not you have dealt with the sin that you now bear. And the truth is, the Bible tells us because of the sin of Adam, we are all born sinners. I have never once had to teach my children how to do wrong. I've always had to teach them how to do right. And you know what? Wrong comes real easy to me because it's my nature. And the truth is, is that it's your nature. It's every human being's nature because Adam, our father way back, and by the way, we can go ahead and talk about race and gender and all of that mess, but we all go back to one person, Adam. I'll go back there anyway. No reason to fight about it. We're all back there. And you know what? Old Adam, he messed up in the garden. And because he messed up, there's all this mess in the world in which we live today. And our souls are lost because of our sin. The sin of Adam in us. I'm born that way. I'll live that way. And I'll die a sinner if I don't take God up on his offer. You know what his offer is? Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, who died on the cross, shed his perfect, precious blood, and he literally laid down his life so that he could take my place on Calvary. I deserved to die that day, but instead he died in my place. And you know what? He'll die in, he died in your place. But here's the thing. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to make a conscious decision to trust what Jesus Christ did and him to forgive you, save you, and to come into your life. You have to literally, in a sense, he's knocking at your heart's door and he's saying, let me in and allow me to have the authority in your life. Let me sit on the throne of your life. I want control of you. I want you to allow me to be your Lord and Savior. You make a decision to let him wash your sin away and take up residency inside or not. Have you done that? Have you let Christ forgive you of your sin? Have you received and accepted him into your life? Do you understand and would you say only by the grace of God, it's only Jesus and what he did for me on Calvary that I can shout, I'm saved, forgiven, and on my way to heaven. I don't deserve the heaven at all. I deserve hell. But thank God he died for me and took my place. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to do that today. And then you can begin afresh and anew in your life. You begin to work on things like yourself. After you've settled your soul salvation, you begin to work on your marriage like never before. You can begin to see God at work and alive in your life, your marriage, your home. He'll do a miracle. But it all begins with a relationship. A relationship with him. Have you trusted him? Have you received him? And if you haven't, won't you today? He'd be glad to take you if you'll just call unto him and come to him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, 
I will in no wise cast out. I remember dealing with a little girl. She was about 14, 13 years old. She'd been abused. Her dad had left her. It was a bad situation. I still remember talking with her. And she was at one of, my, uh, uh, one of the youth programs. She was just a young teenage girl, 13 at the most. And she said, there's no way, no way God would want anything to do with me after what I've been through. And I still remember taking her over to that passage and, 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 and showing her that passage and saying, listen, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No wise. And I said, you want to know what? That means even you. She looked at me and she said, even me? You mean if I came to him, he wouldn't cast me out? Everybody's cast me out. And she started crying. Just tears pouring down her face. I said, he promised he would not do that to you. If you come to him, I said, here's how it works. I said, pretend that I am Jesus Christ. And I said, there you stand. I said, you come over here. You come to me. And she came to me and I gave her a big hug. And I said, you see that? I said, if you'll come to Jesus, he'll give you a big hug too. And she was weeping, just pour, tears pouring down my shoulder. I stood her back there and I said, would you come to Jesus today? She said, oh, I would love to come to Jesus. Since he'll have me, I'll come to him. Man, she got saved that day. Can I tell you, he'll accept you too. You come to him, he'll receive you too. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. He loves you today. And he wants to accept you right where you're at and who, for who you are. There are no little people in God's eyes. We are all the same. And we just need him. Father, we come to you. We just thank you so much for your love and grace in our lives. We our needy people. And we, Lord, we look at this issue of marriage and we know that the foundation has been laid. You laid that foundation. Lord, we need you to, to, to help us through these issues and problems in our lives, our marriages, our relationships. Help us as we move forward, as we begin to look at characteristics and qualities of a marriage that will help to strengthen it. And Lord, may we make marriage important and big in our lives because it's important and big to you. Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd be with that one that's lost without Jesus Christ today. Maybe they don't know for sure if they died, they'd go to heaven. But Lord, you said all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Well, he is calling now and he wants us to come to his son Jesus. We simply need to go to him and he'll receive and accept us. He'll not cast us away. Father, thank you that he'll receive us. Lord, I'm glad that you received me that day that I didn't deserve it but I'm glad you did. And I pray, Father, that if there be any that have yet to receive you, they would do so today before it's eternally too late. Lord, be glorified now in this service. Be glorified in this time of invitation. Lord, bless our baptism even tonight. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.